Morning, Christ Church. We are in a sermon series right now called Builders of Unity, I mean, Builders of Unity. And uh, two weeks ago, Father Cliff spoke on humility, that essential ingredient that we need for unity. Last week, Father Herb spoke on conflict, on how do you enter into conflict and maintain unity. And um, I've been thinking about this, <clears throat> this sermon title, Builders of Unity, and just how hard, how much work it takes to maintain unity. Like the, the actual work of forgiving other people, the work of trusting the best in another person, that when someone says something and they disagree with you, you disagree with them, that you genuinely believe that they are following the Lord and have a different opinion than you just takes a great amount of consistent work, great amount of consistent charity, takes spiritual maturity, It's not something easy to do. How hard it is, the work of building one another up, how easy it is to tear down, how easy it is to think that another person is, um, it does not, has not thought clearly about an issue, doesn't care about things the way you care about things, how easy it is to gossip or to only share some half-truths, not a whole truth of a full picture, but just partial truth to make yourself or your position look better. And I was thinking, even in light of this week of the storm, and I saw over social media just a number of images of kind of trees in their beauty covered in ice. And I started thinking just how long it took some of those trees to grow roots deep, to grow tall, to spread their canopy open, how much work that took for them, and then how easy it was for an ice storm to destroy, to pull down, to break apart. So this Serious idea, builders of unity. Unity is a great idea until you try and do it, you know? Jesus says, forgive one another, and that's great until you have to forgive, and then it becomes challenging. And today we're going to continue our series. We're going to look at a key aspect of unity building. You might have noticed a theme in all of our readings is friendship. We heard this in, um, in our first reading. We hear about a conflict between two friends, Paul and Barnabas. If you were, um, during our psalm, there's a, a line in there that even my close friend, my, my best friend has turned away from me, this kind of darker side of friendship. And then our gospel reading that Jesus says, if you want to imagine what heaven is like, if you want an icon of heaven, imagine a great banquet feast, a party, and everyone that you invite are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the sinners. Suddenly, you've got a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is all about, a community of friends who are all broken but invited to the Lord's table. In the ancient world, friendship was one of the primary virtues. Aristotle, other philosophers, they wrote whole papers, essays. If you were like a philosophy student, you in the ancient world, you had to read all of these papers, all these essays on what friendship was all about. Aristotle said, friendship is only possible among equals. So in the ancient world, men and women wouldn't have been able to be friends because Aristotle didn't say that you could be equals as men and women. Men and children wouldn't have been able to be friends or uh, servants. There is only equality, like a very slim social margin were allowed to be friends. And then Jesus comes and completely revolutionizes this when he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. You sit at the table with me. You are my equal." God has stepped down and said, I raise you up to my level. You welcomed every single week at my banquet feast at this table, a community of friends. Early Christians built on this. They wrote essays and models around this virtue of friendship, of spiritual companionship. 
saying that we are pilgrims together, journeying towards New Jerusalem. We are companions. That word companion literally means people who break bread, who eat together, walking towards God. But as things often do, this virtue of friendship fell out of influence. And the church uh, didn't spend as much time in the, the latter you know, past 500 years speaking about it as much. It hasn't been a, a primary topic. In fact, when I said today, we're going to speak about friendship, you might have thought, huh, that doesn't really inspire me to some courageous action. Kind of sounds pretty bland. Yeah, arms up. Like, is this really what we're talking about today? I want to say, yes, it is. I am convinced. I'm convinced that friendship is one of the primary tonics that we have to offer to a hurting world. That in an age of isolation, the church is the community of friends offering belonging. That what we have when we talk about the gospel, the gospel embodies a community, calls together a community of friends. Friends with difficulties, friends with challenges, friends with pain, the blind, the crippled, the lame, but friends at the table of our king eating together. For youth growing up right now, middle schoolers, high schoolers, what you need more than anything else, not particularly which school you go to or, or what the curriculum is, you need stable and faithful friendships. They will shape you. When it comes to conversations about justice, working for the good of the city, I know of nothing as powerful as a committed group of friends who say this is, this is what things could look like. And they work together arm in arm. I just I recently finished reading uh, Dr. King. Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a book, an autobiography called The Montgomery Bus Boycott, describing in the 1950s um, how this Montgomery Bus Boycott really kicked off the civil rights movement and changed the shape of the nation. And it could also be called um, How Friends Worked Together to Fight Injustice. If you care about going far together, you will care about friendship. So today we're going to look at becoming builders of unity by looking at friendship through a character study, the life of Barnabas. And if you have your Bible, you're just going to want to open to the book of Acts. And I'm going to do a flyby Acts um, through like Acts 1 through 15. Um, and we'll pop in at like different points of the story to look at key moments in Barnabas's life. I think Barnabas is the icon of friendship. Here's what I want to say to you is that I think more than anyone else in the New Testament outside of Jesus, Barnabas might be the most important, the most influential, and his influence matters because of his consistent friendships to those around him. That's what we're looking at today, and um, Acts 4, verse 36 is where we'll begin. It's the first time we meet Barnabas. We never know as much about people in Scripture as we want, so we don't get too much, but here's what we know about Barnabas's background, his early life, growing up, where he's from, all of that. Verse 36 and 37, Joseph, not Barnabas, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, his nickname, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here, let me orient you where we are in Acts. Peter and John have just been arrested for healing a lame man. Uh, they've been taken into the prison guard and they've been released and they come back out and all the apostles are together and they're praying and the Holy Spirit falls again. It's like Pentecost 2.0. The building's shaken, it's kind of an earthquake, and, um, and Luke wants to give a snapshot. What was the church like in that moment? And he said there were people who were just taking things that they owned, property that they owned, selling it and giving it to the common good, and one of these people was a man named Joseph. Here's what we learn about him. He's Jewish man, a Jewish man from the tribe of Levi, but he's also from Cyprus, 
And what that means is that he is 100% ethnically Jewish, but he doesn't live in the Jewish land. He lives scattered abroad on an island, so his culture that he would have grown up, the primary language he would have spoken would have been a Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, uh, Greek language. So he's a man who's kind of standing in two places at once, two cultures at once. One, one way you might think about this is um, some of you perhaps have known or have grown up as a missionary kid, you know, growing up with like kind of a home culture, but growing up abroad. Or you might be maybe a first-generation American. You're parents perhaps immigrated, and so you've got this home culture, but you've also got this other culture you're a part of. Barnabas is 100% a, a Jew, and he is 100% a Greek. He kind of embodies both of these. I think this is going to make him a good uh, friend for Paul, who has a similar background. Second of all, he's wealthy. He owns land in Jerusalem. He's a wealthy person. He also, he could have felt conf conflicted about his wealth because Levites, according to uh, the Old Testament law weren't supposed to own land. He was in Jerusalem at Pentecost, meaning he had traveled to the city. He's a devout man, and he has this nickname, the Encourager. We don't remember Joseph, from the Levite from Cyprus. We remember Barnabas. Barney is maybe another nickname for him. In Greek, this word Barnabas, it means the son of Periclesis. That word Periclesis, some of you might know, a name for the Holy Spirit is the Paraclete. You think about the spirit, the one who encourages, the one who convicts, the one who gently tells a person, keep going, you can do this, have faith. And then you kind of superimpose that over a, a person, over Joseph, over Barnabas. He's the person. If you've ever been around one of these people, when they show up, you yourself feel encouraged. There's a, a warmth towards them. They're smiling toward that. They're, they're offering you. They see you and they lift you up even when they're correcting you. Even when they're saying, you did it wrong, they're still wanting to offer, like, here's how you could do it better. Because I love you, I care about you, I will speak truthfully to you. And Barnabas is that kind of a man. He's a straight shooter in love. He'll, he'll give it to you straight, which is like such a gift. You know, I often write on the top of my paper, um, when if, if I'm getting ready to go into a hard conversation with someone, and I've kind of got meeting notes in front of me, I'll write at the top of my paper, clarity is kindness. I want to speak clarity to this person in kindness because I love them and I care for them. This is the sort of man Barnabas is, is speaking the truth in love. Now we're going to focus on his friendship with Paul, which is instructive for us. And Paul, Paul gets off to a bad start in Acts. If you, if you maybe read Acts before, you know he does not start well. So you can flip over to Acts 7 and we first meet uh, Paul, his name's Saul at this point. We first meet Saul at the, um, at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr, and Saul is there giving his consent, giving his approval. Other people are laying down their jackets at his feet, and he then goes on a tear. This is a guy, we're thinking about people that we, we know, so let me think about this. Have you ever met someone who's like young 20s, fresh out of college, feels like they know how to do the world right? They've got a ton of energy. They're a complete idealist, and they convince people that they know what they're doing. Have you ever met anyone like that, those kind of people? They're just a, a, like a, a meteor of energy, and it, they're kind of fun to be around, but it's also a little scary sometimes. He's like, where are you going to go, and where's, where's this idea you've got going to end up? Paul seems like he's one of those kind of guys. So after the stoning of Stephen, he goes to the chief priests, and he says, hey, I don't have the authority for this. 
It's not legal for me to do it, but if you'll give me the papers, I'm going to start going around house by house, town by town, city by city. I will find all of these people who are following Jesus. I'll bring them back, and you can, I'll extradite them, and you can, you can put them in prison. You can do what you want with them. So he gets these papers, and he's going on his way up to Damascus, north of the city, and on the way, you remember, he encounters Jesus. Jesus encounters him. Do you remember Jesus, this voice speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, and what you are doing to my followers is a direct action against me. Saul has this dramatic spiritual experience where he is blind for three days, and on the third day, he meets someone who tells him a little bit more about Jesus, who baptizes him. Something falls from his eyes. Something dramatic happens to him, and he immediately meteoric, influential, you know, he's an influencer that he is, he immediately begins preaching about Jesus. And as he preaches about Jesus, he preaches with such gusto, such energy, that he's actually kicked out of the city. There's a plot afoot uh, to get rid of him. And so he has to sneak out of the city, and he, makes, he starts making his way down south to Jerusalem, which is where all the influential Christians are gathered at that point. And as he's going down, word starts to go ahead of him. Because remember, there's no, like, there's no cell phones, no cell towers. Um, there's letter writing is like maybe the fastest way to communicate to people. There's no internet. Um, there's no Instagram. There's no way of knowing, has Paul really had some kind of a conversion experience? Does Jesus really, like, Jesus, we get that you were forgiving people when you were hanging on the cross, but this guy who's been dragging us out of the house, this guy who was standing at Stephen's martyrdom, have you really done something in his life? You can imagine that as word starts to get ahead of Paul, that the, all the apostles in, uh, in Jerusalem are like, no, no way. We don't know if we can trust this guy. We don't know. if it, Put yourself in their place. If you heard that there was someone like this who is coming to Christ's church and they wanted to round up Christians, they wanted to round up Christians who believed in God in this kind of way, would you, would you let them in? Would you open the gates? Would you open the doors? Or would you be a little bit more suspicious and try and do some due diligence? All right, look at the end of Acts 9, verse 26 and 27. It says, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, which makes sense from his perspective, from everyone else's perspective. Dude, you're an idiot. <laughs> what are you thinking? They were afraid of him. Of course they were. They didn't believe he was really a disciple, but Barnabas but someone, and that someone was Barnabas, took him, met him, went to him, and brought him to the apostles. Someone had to risk their physical safety to go out there and meet Paul. Someone then had to risk their reputation, put their reputation on the line and say, I think this person is trustworthy, and bring them in. Barnabas told them how Saul on his journey actually had seen the Lord. Barnabas vouched for Saul and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he really had been preaching fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Friendship begins by truly listening to the other person's story. Non-judgmentally, not anxiously, being present in front of another person and listening to them. Paul Tillich, the theologian, wrote that love's first act is to listen. Similarly, Simone Vale wrote that attention, when we give another person attention, it is the rarest and purest form of generosity. 
Like, have you ever thought about that before? When we say, let me, let me pay attention to what you're saying, like, that's an economic metaphor. Let me pay you something. Let me give you my presence, and you begin speaking. Paying you with the presence, listening to your story, believing you. This is absolutely powerful for friendship to happen. You know, as a pastor, I often counsel people in any number of situations. I counsel people who are preparing to enter into marriage. I'm there with people during medical diagnoses. I'm around hospital beds. I've been in homeless encampments, parish retreats. And I'm always amazed that if I'll simply just be quiet and ask a person what's going on in their life, what they'll truly share with me. And I don't think that's special for being a pastor. I just think that's what it is to be a human and enter into relationship, to give the gift of attention. Love's first act is to listen. First step of friendship is risky, and it is listening, giving another person space to share with you who they are, what they're going through. It's one of the reasons I, um, I love this prayer it's attributed to St. Francis, and we often sing it around here. In fact, it's a song as well. It's been made into a song. And um, it, so much of friendship and doing this kind of work really is becoming an instrument of peace. Like, Paul, you're not an instrument of peace right now. You seem to be an instrument of violence. We need a Barnabas to go and sow love where there is hatred, to sow pardon where there is injury, to offer forgiveness. Now, I love this second paragraph right here. It says, because... I love it so much because this second paragraph really gets at the heart of the friendship I'm describing. It says, Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as I go and talk to people as to console. Grant that I may not so much be seek that my point of view would be understood, but that I would listen and understand their point of view. Grant that I'm not concerned with meeting my own affirmational needs right now to be loved, but that I'm concerned with sharing love, with giving love. Like, that is the step of friendship, and that is the gift that Barnabas was offering Paul. So he introduces Paul to the disciples in Acts 9, and the disciples take in Paul, and they, you know, quickly kind of, um, they embrace him as their own, but Paul being Paul does something um, pretty normal, and that is he continues to preach so kind of like magnanimously, that's the wrong word, he preaches so firefully, so full of fire Uh, throughout Jerusalem that Jerusalem itself can't handle him, and they send him away to Tarsus, to his hometown in Tarsus. And the thing about this is um, we, we, at this point, we kind of lose track of Paul. He goes up to Tarsus. It's on the north shore of the Mediterranean. He goes up there for 13 years. For 13 years, Paul is in his hometown, not connected to the disciples. And we often, uh, scholars kind of refer to this time as like the desert season of Paul. It is just a deeply shaping time in his life where we don't know what is, is happening up there. But during this time, Christianity, the Christian movement, continues to grow, and it has a foothold in a very cosmopolitan city called Antioch. And this is a place where the uh, followers of the way are first called Christians. And so they, they look around, and they're like, we need someone who uh, can go up to this cosmopolitan city. There's Jews there. There's Greeks there. We need someone who can kind of bridge the culture gap. Barnabas, you're the man. They send Barnabas up to go up to Antioch and to lead the church there. Barnabas gets up there, and he's like, things are exploding. This is incredible. I can't do it all alone. And so his first act is to go and actually, 13 years later, his first act is to go and find Paul. Look at this in uh, Acts 11, 
verse 25 through 26. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, that might look like not that, in, that big of, or impressive of a, um, of a statement, but let's not gloss over it. Has there ever been anyone in your life that you have not kept in touch with for 13 years that when you have a leadership opportunity, you go looking for them? Like, can you imagine, like, Someone, you're in your like young 30s, and you're like, hey, I haven't seen you since college. And the last time I saw you in college, I remember you were in that fraternity. I think I saw you running around campus at like 2 a.m. one time, mostly in your underwear. I've got a leadership opportunity for you. I think you would be great to co-lead a church with me. Like, is that the kind of, that doesn't make sense, right? Like something doesn't, some, something doesn't connect right there. So here's what I want to propose is that I think during these 13 years, and we don't know this for sure, but I want to bet that Barnabas has been regularly praying for Paul. More than that, I think that Barnabas has been in communication with Paul. That as Paul's going through this desert isolation season, Barnabas says, I don't leave you alone in your isolation. I'm with you. I continue. I imagine they're writing letters back and forth. That might even have been the, the impetus for where Paul gets the ideas to write letters. But he's writing, he's caring. Somehow he's concerned about Paul for all these years. Barnabas goes to Paul and requests his friendship and his help in a difficult season in his life, and there is a persistence in Barnabas's friendship towards Paul. Refusing to give up on the friendship, even when it's difficult, even when Paul's in isolation, separated by many miles, refusing to give up on the friendship. There's a book that came out here um, in the U.S. about 20 years ago called Bowling Alone. And maybe some of you have heard of this book before, Bowling Alone. It's a real thick book. It's worth, um, it is worth reading, but it's challenging. So maybe just a, a quick Google search will give you the summary notes. Here's kind of the point of it is something has changed in the United States. And there was a time when we used to have bowling leagues. And you could belong to a bowling league, and even if you didn't go to a church with the person, even if you weren't involved civically with the person, there was still community space where you could have friendship with the person. But we don't have that anymore, and now people bowl alone. And what it ultimately gets to is the way that life is lived in modern America. This is 20 years ago, before smartphones were uh, produced, before there was 24-7 streaming on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. The way that we are tending to live is in complete urban isolation, that we live in silos disconnected from friendships. And the book pointed out, and this has become a major point of study, especially adult men. Adult men in the United States simply do not have, statistically do not have friendships. They live in a world of isolation with responsibilities, responsibilities towards family, responsibilities towards career, carrying weight on their shoulders, feeling ill-equipped and alone. And if you're tracking the cultural conversation right now, there's absolutely a crisis of masculinity because what we see is a number of negative views of toxic masculinity and few positive images. So we leave men in isolation. And yet I believe that there is space to be a faithful, to have a faithful and courageous masculinity that honors women in fact, it elevates women into positions of leadership, promotes goodness, a masculinity that contends for what's right and good in the world, even willing to sacrifice itself for it, but won't do it alone. The kind of masculinity I'm describing requires friendships. There's no sort of isolation that'll allow that masculinity to flourish. 
not just young men. We think of isolation. Our young adults right now are asking questions. What does it look like to date in the kingdom of God? How do we do that in a way that is honorable to one another? How do we do it in a way that honors God, cares for the other, and enters into the possibility of a future together? And there can even be a loneliness and an isolation in trying to date in a faithful way. You need friends. You need friends when you are in moments of isolation feeling like no one knows what's going on. A few weeks ago, I audited an amazing class on faith and mental health challenges. And even as more and more mental health challenges are being discussed, being talked about in churches, different places, there's still a personal isolation because there's such a stigma associated with words like depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. And isn't the church called to be the community of friends, all of us? Blind, crippled, lame, sinners. We are all invited as equals at Jesus' table. So in whatever isolation you have, we need friends. It's one of the things I'm amazed at every week serving communion is as one of your priests, I'm, I'm aware of pains in many of your lives, not all of yours. Father Cliff is aware of many more as well. God knows all. He knows every pain that you have. He holds it. He carries it. And he offers you the gift of community to enter into friendships where you can have others carry burdens with you. Barnabas carried Paul, I believe, in his isolation. They go into Antioch. They lead together in Acts 13. And the church continues to grow. Antioch does something. In Acts 13, Antioch does something that the Christian movement has never done, which is this. It sends out missionaries. Up to this point in Acts 13, they, we have never sent out missionaries before. Christians have scattered because of persecution. They scattered as they had to go back to their homeland. But we have never intentionally sent people out. In Acts 13, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They placed their hands on them. They sent them off. And so Barnabas and Paul go on this first missionary journey. The journey is actually really difficult. They get to their first place, and it's so difficult. They meet, they encounter this sorcerer who um, is such a powerful spiritual figure that one of the guys on the trip, John Mark, says, I'm out. Peace. I'm leaving. I'm not doing that. I thought we were going to talk to people about Jesus. I did not intend to have a curse put upon me. Like, he's just, he's ready to bail on this. They, they oppose this guy, and then they continue to preach, and they continue to go throughout this trip. And something really fascinating happens on this is that it becomes clear Paul is the leader of the trip. Like, he's the one preaching. He's the one confronting leaders. And so the number two guy, the number one guy, Barnabas, who's the leader of the trip, they sent out Barnabas and, and Saul, he says, I see your gifting, Paul, and I step aside, and I let you lead. Like, friendship has this humility to see goodness in others without envy, just to say, like, I see this gift in you, and I'm making space for you to lead. It, one way you might think about it would be like if I came in this week and was like, Cliff, you're the rector, I'm the associate, and um, I think we should flip positions. I'd like to, to change things up in the org chart around here. <laughs> Cliff might have something to say about that, rightfully so, right? And, and yet the humility of Barnabas to say, I can step aside. I can step aside and let Paul lead in this moment. They finished the missionary trip. They've been beat up. They've been abused. They've been kicked out. They've planted the Galatian church in this first missionary journey, and they returned to Jerusalem telling everyone what they did. 
Now, it's been about a year or two after this, and Paul and Barnabas are preparing to revisit the churches. They say, we need to go back and hear how these churches are doing. We need to encourage them. We need to to help contend for the faith. And Barnabas says, I agree. Let's go back. Let's get John Mark, the guy that deserted earlier. Let's get him. Let's bring him. Let's do it again. And Paul says, there's no way we're bringing that guy again. Instead, let's get Silas, and let's take him and go. And they get into such a sharp dispute about this that Paul and Barnabas go different ways. This was our first reading this morning from Acts 15. Such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And you kind of wonder who's right in this situation, because I really see Paul's point. Like, the mission really matters. We really are supposed to go back around and encourage these believers. And I really think Barnabas is right, that Jesus always says, go after the one restore these people. Like they, they both have some, some piece of, of truth here. And I think this is so important to recognize in friendship is that friendship, again, enters conflict humbly, recognizing there might be more than one solution on things. You know, so some of the things that Father Herb was talking about last week is friendship is willing to enter conflict. If you have a disagreement with someone here at the church and you're unwilling to talk to them, you have stepped away from friendship. You have a disagreement with, with someone. Someone's upset you. Someone said something, and you're, you've become frustrated. You've become cold towards them, and you're not willing to enter into a, a conversation with them, a disagreeing conversation with them. You're stepping out of friendship because true friendship trusts and loves the other person enough to enter into disagreement. Now, after this happens... The rest of Acts, there's 13 chapters left in Acts, and we don't know what happens to Barnabas. Luke, who's writing this story, follows along with Paul. So the rest of Acts is about Paul. We don't see Barnabas anymore in Scripture. This is the last thing we see from him. But his mark of friendship is left over all of Scripture. And this is one of the things I want to leave you with is in terms of strategy, You can never calculate how powerful a friendship will be at building unity, at creating something that even you never intended. You know, Jesus has that parable. When you sow seeds, they're going to come back 30, 60, 100 times over. You will not be able to guess how wide the multiplicity of love and friendship might spread. Let me show you one or two things. First of all, the end of Paul's life, this next slide, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last letter Paul writes. He's writing from a prison in Rome, and in the very, his very last words, he says, Timothy, you young pastor, do your best to come to me soon. Demas, he's deserted me. Crescens is gone. Titus is gone. Luke is with me. But when you come with me, would you bring Mark? Bring Mark with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Mark is the guy that deserted. He's the guy that ran away. Somehow, through the friendship of Barnabas, Barnabas choosing to be with Mark again, there has been a reconciliation even between Paul and John Mark. I want to go further and suggest that I think the friendship of Barnabas is directly responsible for the New Testament even being compiled. Think about this. If it weren't for Barnabas, would Paul have ever been accepted into the company of the apostles? If it weren't for Barnabas, would Paul have ever had an opportunity to come and lead at the church that sent out the first missionary journey? If it weren't for Barnabas, would Barnabas have, would Paul have had the opportunity to lead the missionary journey, to become the chief missionary leader? 
I think there's a case to be made that all of Paul's church planning activity in the 13 letters he writes in the New Testament, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, like all of them, I think can be traced back to the friendship of Barnabas, who persisted in isolation, who risked himself to listen to Paul. What about the Gospels? Scholars, the, the scholarly consensus is that John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark and that the Gospel of Mark is the first Gospel to be written. After Mark, Matthew and Luke are written and later comes John. But when Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, he does something so creative, so totally innovative. Up to that point, a gospel had never existed as a biography. Like, you know, there has to be some point when someone innovates and writes science fiction for the first time. Like, what would it be like if robots came to life and took over the world? Like, I'm going to write the science fiction. Someone had to write that genre or write dystopian genre. Like, there has to be a first person. Mark writes the very first gospel, a biography that's also a theological statement, puts the two together. And you start to wonder, would he have had the courage to do that? Would he have had the encouragement to do that if not for Barnabas and his friendship towards John Mark? towards restoring him, towards persisting in isolation at a season when John Mark might have been tempted to identify himself as, I'm the deserter. I'm the one who bailed on Paul. I'm the one who didn't make it. I didn't make the team for the second missionary journey. Like, it could be possible that that's the albatross around his neck, and yet, because of Barnabas's friendship, he was able to say, I'm friends in Christ. I sit at his table. My image, my identity is restored. Christ Church, why does friendship matter for church unity? Because in the kingdom of God, Jesus calls us his friends. And then he tells us to go and do likewise, to treat one another as we have been treated. You are a community, a company of friends. It doesn't mean you know everyone exactly equal, but you all sit at the same table. That is how we do the consistent and hard work of building unity in the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sit at your table by your inv invitation. We did not choose you, you chose us. And we say thank you. What a hilarious gift that you would choose us to sit at your table, that you would choose to call us friends. The status that we feel, the identity that we feel, the, the gratitude that we feel to sit with you. Lord, would you deepen our ties as a community of friends, the no one stands alone reality that you've given to us here at Christ Church. We ask and pray in your name. Amen.